Today's sermon is entitled, By His Word. The passage I've chosen is John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. My name is Reverend Derek Gilder, and I'm pastor here at McKees Mills Baptist Church, and I want to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I got thinking about faith. How does faith first occur? You know what the reality is, is that we look at the things around us and we can have a faith in a lot of different things or belief or knowledge of things. How do we come to believe that certain things are true and other things are not? I got thinking first and foremost, I believe we all have what is called senses. We got five of them. We can, with our ears, we can hear. With our nose, we can smell. With our tongue, we can taste. With our eyes, we can get the sense of sight. And with our skin, we can basically get some touch. We all have brains, and we use all of our senses and our brains to try to figure out the environment that is around us. We've come to many different things that we consider to be true based on experimentation. In other words, we go in the environment and we say, how much can I prove to happen all the time? And if it's going to happen all the time, the probability of success of doing A always leads to B. Then we're going to say there's something there, and I think I found the truth. I'll give you an example of that. When you sit back and you look at the law of gravity. Now, if I take a ball and I'm at work and I take this ball and I put it on my desk, I know if I roll it off the edge of the desk, it will always do the same thing. It's going to fall off of the desk. It's going to land on the floor. It's going to come still eventually, and it's just going to sit there. That's called the law of gravity. 100% of the time when I roll that ball off the edge of my desk, it's always going to fall downwards. I know that because of the law of gravity. We've come up to those conclusions that anything that is 100% occurrence, we say that is a law. There's lots of laws of nature that we have discovered as humanity, and we believe that is always going to be true. But truth doesn't stop there. We also look at the probability of something that is going to occur, if it's fairly high, then we say that's also truth as well to us as human beings. Now, I went to Acadia University. And I studied both finance and economics. I have a minor in economics. And I remember studying the law of supply and demand. And basically what the law of supply and demand says, if the demand goes up and the supply goes down, then the price is naturally going to go up and it's going to be much higher. We believe this to be true. And if we go back in the COVID times, I was looking for a car at this time. And I remember as I looked for the car, I soon realized how difficult it was to buy a car during COVID. I went to the various different lots, and there was no cars there. They didn't have anything to sell, albeit they were still trying to sell their cars that they didn't have. And the supply had actually gone right down just beyond almost, you couldn't find one. And guess where the price went? Of course, it went up. And guess where the demand went? The demand went up, too, because people couldn't get one. And I remember that I paid an awful lot for the car that I needed to buy during that time period. Now, does this always hold true? If the demand goes up and the supply goes down, does the price always go up? Well, for the majority of the time, the answer is yes, but there's other factors that I could talk about, and I'm not going to, that would affect that too as well. But we take that to be true. Why? Because the majority of the time it happens. What about history? As I went to university, my professor taught me about history, and he said history actually is all based on probabilities. And of course, as soon as he said that, I said, whoa, wait a minute now, isn't history historical facts? And he said, no, none of it is, really. You know, in reality, the historian looks at all the eyewitness accounts that they can find. And every single one of those eyewitness accounts, by the way, are biased. Every one of them, they have their own personal bias. The people who saw the events recall them the way that they feel that they actually happened. And he said, after the historian gets all these different accounts, he splices them together, he or she, and, and gets to what is considered to be true. 
When we pick up a history book, do we think about probabilities? No, we just say it is true. There's other cases in life in which we decide that truth occurs based on even slimmer probabilities. For instance, if you study really hard like I did at Acadia, are you guaranteed 100% success? No. We believe that if you study really hard, you'll be more successful in life. You'll learn more and therefore able to apply more and get a better job. But is that always the, the choice? Is that always the way things that work out? No. And when it comes to our health, we believe that if you eat better, you eat really good food. And if you exercise a lot, that your health will be better. That is a, a fact that we believe to be true. We hold that true as human beings. But is that always the case? Again, not necessarily. But we still believe it to be true. Now, this is one kind of belief. So we're, we're getting pretty used to, as human beings, basing our belief on probabilities of occurrence and trying to figure out our environment. But what does it take for us to take a, a leap of faith? What does it take for us to understand God's reality? What does it take for us to perceive that we belong to this grand narrative in which God is 100% in control of all things seen and unseen? Colossians 1.16. How are our eyes open? How are our hearts open? How do we gain confidence in what we cannot see? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, ultimately, faith is a substance of the things that we hope for, the evidence of things that we can't see at all. In other words, there is a spiritual realm that's not open to our senses of smell and touch and feel, and our brains can't necessarily figure it out. It's our hearts. It's our souls. It's God reaching out towards us and us finally saying, yes, Lord, I know who you are. I know you the best that I can. I want to live for you. How does that happen in the first place? Believing in something based on probabilities is one thing. But how does one actually believe in the Lord, which we cannot touch him physically? We cannot see him physically. We have to rely on other evidence. In the Bible, it says all creation testifies to God's existence so that no one's left without excuse. But how do we actually look at creation and look beyond the physical part of creation and see the Lord? How do we do that? In the upcoming sermon, we're going to talk about an official. This was a fellow who was very prominent and very rich. His son got sick, and he sat back and said, first he went through all the doctors, I am sure, and tried to get a cure and found out there wasn't any cure, and his son was about to die, and this official went to the Lord and said, I know it makes no sense based on probabilities. It makes no sense on the laws of nature, for the laws of nature says that my son's going to die, but this official said, I know, Jesus Christ, you're in charge of everything, and that you can heal my son. And we're going to see how faith for this individual started out very weak. And as time went on, the official and his family actually came to know the Lord and had a relationship with him. But let's start off first and foremost and say, how does the roots of faith actually occur in the first place? In the Bible, it says a seed must be planted. In other words, the seeds of righteousness must be planted within our hearts. We must hear about the word of God somehow, in some way. And then we've got to go beyond just hearing, but actually believing that there is somebody in charge of this universe and that someone is God himself. I got thinking about that Jesus spent a few wonderful days with the Samaritans in the story that we're going to go through. And of course, you can see Samaria in the map, and it's down about the middle side of the map. It's there in uh, in uh, Samaria. 
And of course, Jesus goes and he makes a trip and he goes all the way from the Samaritans and they're, they're hearing him from Jesus Christ and they're hearing by his words and they're believing because Jesus Christ spoke words into their heart, so to speak. And they were, were sitting back saying, oh my goodness, we're believing now in him. And that was a beautiful thing. If you read that passage, it's wonderful to hear how the Samaritans came to know the Lord. And then of course, Jesus goes all the way up into Cana. Now, Cana was a place in which he performed his very first miracle, turning the water into wine at the wedding. And he gets there, and a whole bunch of people get around him. And, and these people, these Galileans, are sitting back, and they're looking at him, and they're trying to test him based on their own abilities. In other words, they're sitting back saying, well, he doesn't really follow the laws of nature, what he's doing. He's doing miracles that are breaking all those laws, and they're sitting back, and they're astonished by him. But ultimately, were they believing in him? No. They were just looking at him and saying, wow, we can't believe you can do these things. This is great. Let's watch you. And oh, by the way, we got a whole bunch of sick people that need to be healed. Will you heal them for us, Jesus? And, and we would like to be fed. Would you feed us too, Jesus? And they were looking to see what they could get from him, but not believing in him. Not even close. And then we're told about this royal official. Now, he's got his son there. His son's laying on his deathbed. His son has a fever, and there is no possible cure for him. The laws of nature would say, in his son's case, 100% of the time during this time period, that his son was going to die. The doctors probably already told the official, he's going to die. There's, there's no way of saying it. He's going to die. Like, it's, he's almost there. And this official, in faith, now he had faith in Jesus. He must have because he left the deathbed of his son to find Jesus. You know what? If he didn't have faith, he certainly wouldn't have done that. If your son is about to die, you want to be at the deathbed. You want to spend as much time as you can with your son. Absolutely. But this fellow believed enough that he said, you know what? I got to go find Jesus. So he takes this journey. And this journey, as you can see on the map, was basically from Capernaum all the way down to Cana. That doesn't look like a really long distance. And it wasn't. It was about 14 miles or so, depending on what commentary you read. But you got this short distance. But back then, if they walked, that was about a day's, day's journey, roughly. So this fella, he's leaving his son who's on his deathbed. It's going to take about a day for him to get there and a day to get back. But he figures it's worth the risk because he felt in his heart that Christ definitely could heal his son. And he goes to Jesus and he says to him, will you heal my son? He begs him. He says, I really need you to heal my son. Here you got this man. He's filled with great riches. He has incredible power and influence. And he gets in front of this crowd. And these, this crowd is a whole bunch of Galileans who don't really believe in Jesus. They're only there because they want to see the miracles. And so you got this crowd, and they're beneath this fella, this nobleman. He's far richer than any of them. They're just poor peasants. So he gets, he gets there, and what does he do? He begs in front of all these other people who are much lower in society than them, he begs, Lord, will you come and heal my son? It was almost like he was a Gentile dog, as it says in scripture, begging for a crumb from the master's table, because I think that's what he was doing. He was saying, I am desperate. You know, I am so desperate. And he sat back saying, you know what? I know my money won't fix this. I know my power will not fix this. I know I have no physical solution whatsoever for this problem that my son's about to die. So he went to Jesus and said, I am desperate. I am desperate because the one that I love so very much, my son, is about to expire and I have no solution, but I'm hoping and I am praying that you do. I know you must, Jesus, will you heal him? The roots of faith have begun in his life. 
because at least he had gone beyond the temporal. At least he went beyond the laws of nature. At least he went beyond probabilities. And he said there is a spiritual realm. And there is somebody who seems to be in charge of everything. And he seems to have control over the the nature that's around us. And he's able to break the laws of nature and make miracles happen. So there's the roots of faith. And they're there. Okay, now let's talk about his faith just a little bit more. His faith was far from perfect at that point. It wasn't a perfect faith. It was just the roots of the faith. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In response to his plea, Christ ultimately looks at him and says, you want me to heal my your son? Okay, how do you think Christ would have responded to him? He says this, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Although this rebuke seems really, really tough, doesn't it? Kind of seems a little bit detached. It seems like Jesus being cold, maybe a little bit unsympathetic towards this official, lest we think that on the surface it might feel that way. But Jesus is testing the nobleman's faith. And he's also, I think, he was testing the Galilean faith, all the people that were around him. He's trying to encourage the people, don't just believe that I can change the laws of nature, Believe I have authority over them. Believe that I am sovereign. Believe that I am your God. And that's what he's trying to tell them. He's trying to tell the official that and the people around him. The Galileans, ultimately, they were just looking for miracles. You know, they failed to embrace, though, the miracles in which, which they were all pointing towards, that Christ was sovereign and in charge of all things seen and unseen. They, you know, when it came to the feeding of 5,000, what were they looking for? They're looking for Jesus to feed them again because they didn't want to work for their food. They wanted the food given to them. When it came to healing of the blind, they were looking for the blind people in their families to be healed. When it came to the healing of the leper, they were looking for the lepers that they knew, maybe some relatives, for them to be healed. When it came to the woman who touched Jesus' cloak and she had an issue of bleeding and it was instantly healed, they were looking for all the things, the calamities and difficulties of their life to be healed by the Lord. But they were not looking at the miracle and saying, this is pointing to the Lord, our God, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. And and the, the result was they had spiritual, I think, curiosity, but it was clothed in the garments of self-indulgence. In other words, they were only thinking about themselves, but they weren't thinking about what they should have been thinking about, how great and awesome our Lord truly is. Contrary to, to their initial impressions, Jesus' rebuke is not harsh. It's, it's not cold when he told the official, oh, by the way, you're not got the right focus. Your faith hasn't grown yet. He wasn't being harsh. He was inviting him, telling him, I got so much more to offer you than just the healing of your son. I've got more for you if you'd only open your eyes. Rather an expression of, of, of hatred or expression of coldness, it was an expression of love and kindness. He wanted the official to know him at a much deeper and personal level than he could ever imagine. Well, the official's journey was about 14 miles. And, and you know what? While this demonstrated that he had some faith, his faith was still incredibly weak. You see, authentic faith, as emphasized by Jesus, transcends far more than just looking for the miracle. It's not riding an emotional wave and sitting back saying, well, everybody else in the church got up and they went for it and they got saved. I should too as well. It's not about that. It's not about looking at Jesus and saying, you did a whole bunch of miracles, therefore I'm going to believe in you because you gave me something. It's not about that either. 
It's about the good shepherd who sacrificed his life for the sheep and loves us and cares for us and wants a relationship with us. When we get to that point, faith is starting to grow. And that's what Jesus was saying. I want to hold you, the official, as my sheep. You're lost. I want you to be found. I want you to know who I am. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to heal your son too, but I want you to believe. And there was the testing of his faith. And that brings me to the third point. Faith must grow. Faith is not just a belief that God can do anything. Faith must be that relationship component. Faith must be God reaching out to us and us finally saying, here I am, Lord. I want to know you. That's what faith is. It's where we start looking for that relationship. At this juncture in the narrative, the tension becomes absolutely incredible. Can you imagine? Here's this fellow, this official, who's got lots of money and lots of power. And here he is with a whole bunch of peasants, Galileans, that are around Jesus. And he just begged Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus, in essence, based on his word, shot him down. Said basically, you know what? I can't believe this is what you're asking for when you should be asking for something else. And this poor fella, everybody's listening and they're wondering, what will this official do? What's he going to say to Jesus? Is he going to argue with him? Is he going to say, yes, but you healed everybody else. Why won't you heal my son? And you know what? I've got more prominence and more power and more prestige. And you should be willing to heal my son. He doesn't argue with them. What does he do? He goes back and he begs again. He says, I am a dog, basically, a Gentile dog based on scripture. And I'm begging for a crumb from the master's table. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to keep begging for that crumb. Talk about faith that's starting to grow just a little bit. Now, he didn't have the faith, though, of the centurion. Remember the centurion in the Bible? He basically said, you know what, Jesus, you don't need to come to my home to get healing for my servant. All you have to do is command it, and it will happen. In other words, the centurion believed by his words. Things happen. Things occur because Jesus Christ is sovereign. You know, he hadn't quite got there yet, the official. He didn't have the same faith as the centurion. But he was starting to get there. He was starting to realize, ultimately, and Christ wanted him to know, long-distance healing happens. Why? Because Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything, including time and distance, no matter what it is. In response to his request, Jesus told him, go and your son will be healed. So he begs again, and Jesus says, at this point, I want you to go. Your son will be healed. And you know what? Here's the thing about this. Seeing is believing. Yeah, that's probably true when it comes to the temporal world. But Jesus was inviting this official to understand that believing is seeing. In other words, the more I believe, the more I'm going to see that spiritual realm. The more that I rely on the Lord, the more I have a relationship with him, the more my eyes will be open to the fact that he is present indivisibly everywhere. And yes, he loves me very much. We are told here that ultimately the official believes at this point. He says, I will go home at this point, and I know you've healed my son. He's starting to get a little bit of faith here, isn't he? I love this quote, and it's from John Bunyan, and he says this. He says, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than gone away from him. For I knew He was my only hope. I knew he was my last hope. I knew he was the only one that could save me. And that is what this official was saying. You are the only one, Lord, that can ultimately save me. 
faith ultimately is dependent solely not on what one, one receives, but on a relationship with the Lord. Faith comes from our relationship. The Lord, you know what, looks at us and says, I don't want a faith that is selfish. I don't, I'm not looking for a faith that is weak. I'm not looking for a faith that's far from genuine. All you're doing is thinking about yourself. I want you to believe in me and have a relationship with me. The author of the Hebrew says this, faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we cannot see. Do you have that kind of assurance? Do you believe in the Lord? Does it matter what your life circumstances are in order to believe in him? Or do you just believe in him because he is your Lord? You see what I'm talking about? You know what? If he always gives us everything that we want, is that really faith? Or is that just us looking at Jesus and saying, you're a genie in the bottle. You're like my my go-to guy that I go to and and whatever I want, I get. That's not faith. Faith is believing in the Lord and having a relationship with him, regardless of our circumstances, be head over heels in love with him. It wells from the springs of living water and the bread of life that sustains us, yes. But at the same time, I think it comes from us being still and knowing that God exists despite our circumstances. You know, this is the thing. James says this. He says to all of us, and this is, these are hard words, by the way, to accept. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters in Christ, whenever you face trials and tribulations of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete and lack absolutely nothing. You know, that's not so easy to do. Look at this guy in the picture. I mean, he's got a big smile on his face and he's going through some really difficult times. That's not easy to do. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms exist. In our perseverance, though, we become mature, James says. The more we rely on the Lord to help us, to sustain us, to be our portion, to give us comfort when we need it, to share his love with us, no matter what our circumstances are, the more we love him for just being him. Not what he gives us, but being him, being our savior, being our Lord, being our king, being our everything. The more we love him, the more our faith grows. The more our faith grows. Genuine faith can feel unspeakable joy in the midst of trials and tribulations because living a good life is not about accumulating things that are here today and gone tomorrow, but it's about prostrating oneself before the Lord and saying, no matter what happens to me, I have my portion. That's you, Lord. No matter how difficult it gets, no matter how bad my health might be, no matter how bad my finances might be, I have you. And that's all I want. That is genuine faith. And that brings me to my fourth point and my final one. And that is this fella, this Roman, this official, this Roman official basically came to the conclusion, Jesus, you're my savior. It's not my religion that's going to save me. It's not what But humanity thinks is the right way to approach God. It's the way that God says we're supposed to approach him, humbly and willing to have a relationship with him. While the official was heading home, we are told in the story that his servants meet up with him. And his servants tells him, oh, by the way, your son is now healed. I can imagine the joy this father must have felt. He must have done a little jig and a dance in front of his servants and said, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And then he starts asking the questions. He wants to test it. He wants to know something really important. Was my son healed because of nature or because of God? Which was it? So he asked the servants, when exactly was my son healed? And he said, oh, it was the other day. It was the exact 
day, the exact moment, the exact time that Jesus said your son was healed. And this guy's going, praise be to the Lord. My God heard my cry. He healed him. It wasn't based on nature. It was based on a sovereign God. And this guy's sitting back saying, praise be to God. And this news is absolutely breathtaking for him. The servant told him, you know what, at the exact time, at the exact time. And he's smiling with all of his heart. And he's saying, wow, this is great. Upon realizing this to be true, he sat back and he said, his faith, he says in the Bible, became genuine. And he saw the miracle beyond that miracle and saw the Lord. And he believed in the Lord and said his whole household did. And he realized it's not about the laws of nature. There is a physical reality all around us, yes, but that physical reality, it says in scriptures and Romans, points and testifies to God's existence. It points to him so we might have a relationship with him. And the official realized that, and he believed. Do you believe? Do you really? You know, how are one's ears and eyes opened? How is one heart open to the fact that God exists? The unseen aspects of faith is difficult for us to understand. God's existence and sovereignty is expressed in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's not easily obtained. Believing in something based on the laws of nature or probabilities or in one's own abilities is completely different than believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we cannot physically touch. We cannot smell. We cannot use our senses to get close to him. In a lot of cases, I would dare say in most cases, we can't fully understand him, and we can't. But at the same time, faith is believing in him. Faith comes from hearing the message of the Lord and understanding that he is sovereign and in control of all things. But more importantly, he wants a genuine relationship with us that is real. This message comes to us. And ultimately, I think it's not about seeing as believing. That's how the laws of nature come about. I think the real faith that the Lord is looking for is for us to believe because we have seen with our hearts how much Jesus loves us. It originates, I think, faith does, genuine faith, from the wellsprings of living water and the sustaining bread of life within our hearts. And despite facing injustices, tribulations, and spiritual attacks, genuine faith matures. Why? Because we put our trust in him. Because he is our portion. And no matter what happens to us, no matter how gruesome life actually gets, and even if we should succumb to death even, even if we should die of our diseases, he's still our portion. We're still going to go to heaven and we're still going to be with him. We're going to submit to his authority to rule over our lives because we love him. This is the essence of faith. We believe that he will always work for the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28 And above all, genuine faith persists even if miracles don't happen. Think about that for a moment. Genuine faith exists even when miracles don't happen. Joe back said when he lost all of his family, all but his wife, he sat back and said, I'll not curse God and die. I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He who gives and he who takes away. Do you feel that? Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have the kind of faith that is committed to God's beautiful, wonderful word? 
and you've read his word and you believe what's in his word, even though you cannot necessarily test all of it by the laws of nature, you still believe because that word came from him. Do you believe? Do you abide in his word? Do you live for him? Are you steadfast in your faith for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Is he your savior? Is he everything to you? Because that is faith. Do you have that kind of faith? You know what? It's, it's, it's okay to believe in the laws of nature. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to believe in science and biology. There's nothing wrong with that either. But what, what becomes wrong is when we put our faith in science and biology at the expense of thinking about our Lord. What is wrong is to, to seek the things of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow. What is wrong is to put our faith in our own abilities rather than putting our faith in a risen Savior. What is wrong is to focus on ourselves. What is wrong is for us as as people in the church to go before the Lord and say, here's my wish list. This is the things that I want in order to believe that you are a kind and gracious God. What that is wrong, what we should be looking for is, Lord, I'm just here as a Gentile dog begging for a crumb from the master's table because I've fallen in love with you. I'm head over heels in love with you, Lord. And I know because you died on the cross, you're head over heels in love with me. And I can't imagine why. Given all the sins that I do, I can't imagine. But you are in love with me. So I rejoice because you are my portion. Do you have that kind of faith? It's not about religion. It's about believing in the Lord. Have you read his word? Do you believe in his word? And do you abide in his word? I'll leave that with you. I hope and pray the answer is yes. If not, ask him into your heart this very day. Amen.